Welcome to Sports Performance Radio, the science of athletic excellence. Hi everyone, it's B. Chavez. Welcome to the March 2018 live question and answer video. Uh, I'm not sure how big the audience is going to be today because obviously this video is being done on the wrong day. Uh, properly it would have been the Sunday of the Arnold Classic and I wound up taking on considerably more work than I intended and was unavailable. I uh, just see somebody logged in, uh, Ridge Reed. Uh, Give me a heads up. Let me know the audio is working. Let me know the picture looks good. Everything's square. I always wonder uh, if I have all my damned settings right. I know a lot about a lot, but damn little about technology, and uh, could very easily be fucking something up. So if you if you're out there and you hear this, give me give me the heads up. Let me know everything sounds looks good. Beautiful. Thank you. So, as I was saying, uh, Arnold Classic derailed the first Sunday of the month. I thought rather than trying to squeeze in a shitty version from some hotel room in Columbus, I thought I would just put it off a week. I posted that on Facebook. Some of you saw it. Probably many of you didn't. For that, I apologize. But nonetheless, here we are, some questions and answers. And even if the live audience doesn't get big, the replays get pretty good views, so we're square. And on top of that, I got some really good solid questions came in uh, over Facebook Messenger over the actually over the Arnold weekend and uh, I agreed to answer them here so there's actually somebody specifically looking for the answer to this question and it's a great question uh, all of you have asked or alluded to things very much like this so I'm gonna read this directly from my phone I got a little two-screen action going here so uh, if I look the fool it's just because I am uh, the question is and I won't use any names, I'll uh, depersonalize it, but um, I have a question. I am on TRT, 200 milligrams, every two weeks, and have been for a little over three months. I had blood work done two months ago to see where my testosterone was mid-cycle, one week post-injection, and it was in the 700s. I had just, I had a follow-up blood test at the end of two weeks, so at the, right before the next injection, I'm assuming, uh, to see where it was at the end of 14 days, and it was 93, which seemed ridiculously low. The doctor was unconcerned and said that was not to worry, just that the testosterone injection wears off after 14 days. Um, given that this level is around 200 lower than it was before I started TRT, I believe that indicates that the TRT initiation was at about 300 nanograms per deciliter. Uh, do you think this protocol of 200 milligrams every 14 days is a bad protocol? Is there a different protocol I might implement? Is this normal or is my doctor crazy? Um, wow, there's a whole bunch in there, but the really the reason I wanted to bring this to you guys is, and I'll address your specific question about better protocol and your the craziness of your doctor, but first let's discuss exactly what's going on. So you have a resting testosterone level of something. In this case, I'm, I'm, I'm gathering from the, the, the wording there that it was 300 nanograms per deciliter, which is low. Although I didn't get your weight, your age, or a lot of things, but nonetheless, 300 is lowish. So you engaged in TRT. So in the early stages of that, your body is still manufacturing testosterone normally. So you take a 200 milligram injection, this is a rough estimate, but everybody's welcome to use it as a pretty good guideline. Typically, what you take in terms of milligramage injection, you see as three times that value in nanograms per deciliter. So a 200 milligram injection will typically show up in your blood at about 600 nanograms per deciliter. So you have 300, you take 200, 300 plus 600, you should see a blood value of around nine. You're referencing here that you saw about seven. It probably did, in fact, reach around nine somewhere there and then tapered off. So that's very, by the book, that's pretty much the numbers that I would expect to see, the numbers you should expect to see. Now, here's the problem. Okay, You started with a resting value of 300. Now, no matter how inadequate that was, your body was making that 
through the normal feedback loops that, you know, luteinizing hormone and follicle stimulating hormone and all the stuff's telling your body to manufacture testosterone. And that's the value you're getting. Now, the minute you take exogenous hormone, the impetus through all the various feedback loops to manufacture that 300 is going away. So even though the drug you're taking is exogenous, that layer of home homemade endogenous hormone is going to decline. So the next time you measure your blood, which is now 14 days later, which by the way is a little early, but uh, it's acceptable. Um, you only see a value of 100 nanograms per deciliter. That's most likely just residual from the drug taken because that 300 that you normally would have had, you no longer have because your body didn't make it, because your body has no impetus to make it. So from that moment forward, you have no natural production. The ultimate um, the, the, the ultimate condition of taking TRT is that you're telling your body it's okay to not make testosterone. And, and, I, and I'm not criticizing that. That's completely acceptable. As long as the you know, pharmaceutical companies don't go out of business and you can consistently still get that, no issue. But you keep in mind, that's physiologically what's happening. The minute you take that first injection, you are telling your body that it's completely okay to no longer make any. So when you no longer see that value on blood work, shouldn't be much of a surprise. Now, here's the problem. Low testosterone, hormone problems of all kinds, diabetes, name one associated with hormones, are a long-term issue. It takes you a long time to generate them, unless you're the unfortunate asshole that just comes from the womb with something, which is a real thing, but it's really a lot, a lot more uncommon than people want to make it out to be. Most of these conditions, you have to work really hard. You have to be really fat, really lazy, really a lot of things to generate these kinds of problems. With, with TRT, maybe a little less so, but still it takes typically decades. You don't get, you know, androgen deficient until you're, you know, 30s. If you're, you know, really pushing hard, usually it's 40s, 50s, 60s. So it takes a long time to generate these things. And the reason I point that out is because it's very inappropriate to expect to see resolution in any sort of homeostasic manner quickly. It's not, by definition, a quick affair. Okay, so you're, you're referencing, you know, the 14 days, you did some blood work three months later. The, Three months is nothing compared to the 30 years it took you to get this way. Now, that 100 that was left, I think you actually said it was 93, but, but round numbers. So you went from 300 to probably 900 down to 100. Now, here's the rub. The way drugs work and the decay and the half-life, that 100 is not going to go away. It's going to decay slowly over the coming period. You're going to take another 200. You're going to get 600 nanograms per deciliter. That's going to layer on top of the 100, so you're going to have 700, and it's going to decay. So at the end of each two weeks, there'll be a little more left over each time. And six months, not weeks, six months from now of doing this, you'll be finishing the two-week period with probably a three or four hundred nanogram per deciliter. You'll be taking your 200 and getting 600. You'll, and then your wave, your sine wave will be more like 1,000 to 4,000. 1,000 to 4, or rather 400. 1,000 to 400. And that not only is I, more or less ideal, it's very much more like your body would have done in the first place. So be, because of the long-acting nature of these drugs, the long-acting nature of the condition itself, this is something that should be a much longer-term project. So is your doctor crazy? No. The part where he's wrong or crazy is the, 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 the rapidity at which he's testing you. He really should have given you that prescription, given you that treatment, and said, let's check your blood work in six months. Because, yes, all this weird shit would have happened under the hood no matter what. You still would not have had ideal blood values, and you would have been on a little bit of a, a, an up-and-down ride. But when it came time to actually perform the test, he would have gotten a much more valid and realistic measurement of what's actually going on in you and what will be going on for the, the foreseeable future. Doctors are... Uh, coached and educated, and, and I'm not criticizing because I have a huge amount of respect for doctors, and the job they do is incredibly difficult, and I don't want it. I'll be, be clear on that. But they are coached and, and, and educated in such a way as to generate the quickest possible resolution. Get people in, get them under control, get them out. It's more of a factory scenario. They're not taking ownership. They're not dealing with under the hood. And in regards to that, I could say this separately. It would be a very, very good idea uh, 
to actually just see an endocrinologist. Yes, it will cost you very much more money. You'll probably have to jump through a lot of different hoops, but an endocrinologist is the person that will have more intimate knowledge with this, will take more ownership, and will be much more specific. But in general, to, to answer the first part of the question you asked, is there anything wrong with this scenario or is your doctor crazy? The answer is no, he's just rushing things. And if you stay the course, suffer the ups and downs for the next few months, you will be fine on the long term, not a question. If you simply cannot tolerate the ups and downs and you want to fill in the gaps or somehow make it better, there are two things that can be done. Well, there's more than two things, but there's two things that probably your doctor is willing to do. One is go to 100 milligrams every week. Same dosage, more frequent administration, you will get a much more even blood plasma reading across time. Uh, in, in reality, it's actually no better, but you will see a satisfying, more consistent number across the blood work. It also means you're going to have to go to your doctor more often or, you know, if you're actually capable of doing that at home, most doctors in today's world don't actually send syringes and, and bottles home with people, but it, it can happen depending on what state you're in. Florida, they do that. But anyway, it, it's, it's more problematic. It's more difficult. It, you know, it, it has its negatives. But if that's a possibility, that is definitely a solution. Solution B is you can get yourself a bottle of underground or you know, black market testosterone and supplement in the middle. That will work great. The problem with that is you have to be very careful to titrate yourself before blood work. You don't want to make yourself feel great, and that means having pretty significant you know, blood testosterone values. Then go to the doctor and him go, oh, my God, we've overshot it by a mile. You're cut off. You can't have any more. And then you're going to be in a, a much bigger mess than you started. So my sincere advice here, especially for somebody so early on in things, um, and you didn't really reference how you felt you really just reference these numbers. My strong suggestion would be if you don't really feel train wreckish and a mess, my strong suggestion would just be ride it out, stay the course, and in four to six months, probably more like six, get some blood work and sit down, take a solid look at it. Um, even possibly, you know, if, if, if you know, need be, make a consult with somebody like myself. Uh, you know, there's a number of other people in the industry that do this sort of thing and get them to go over it. But my strong suspicion is you'll actually be a lot better off than you think, um, especially if you don't really have you know, deep sports performance goals and you're just looking for men's health. It's actually really easy. It's not, there's not a lot to it. So I just want you to understand how you know taking drugs has impact around the back end. It will lower the, the resting value. That's completely normal. It's what's supposed to happen, you know, um, so just hope that helps a little bit in the, in the big picture. Uh, so while I was rambling on there, some comments came in. Let's see. David Herrera is asking me for a power lifter at the top of a weight in meat prep, say six to eight weeks. Should you choose Masteron plus Tren or Masteron plus dihydroboldenone? Oh, with, uh, DHT mix. Um, if you actually have access to DHB, that's a fantastic compound, especially for strength. Uh, most people don't even know that that exists. Dihydroboldenone, by the way, folks, is a 5-alpha reduced version, which biologically is impossible. It has to be done in a lab. A DHT, 5-alpha reduced version of the root molecule that is uh, dianabol and boldenone. It's a very wickedly powerful, I mean, literally uh, like 200 milligrams of it equates to about a 1,000 milligrams of testosterone. Um, I don't get real wild, but to, to answer your question, I got, I got sidetracked by the DHB. It makes exciting because it's clever chemistry, but to, to answer your question specifically, I don't believe in these secret combinations like this and this makes that and this and this is. Um, I, I treat drugs more as a right tool for the right job thing. Based on what kind of genetics you bring to the table, what kind of training disposition you bring to the table, what kind of so many different things determines what drugs you need. Um, you can have two people at the same point in their prep, and one very much needs anadrol, and one very much needs primabolin, just because they are different people, and they've accrued and collected different skills and, and conditions. So I don't necessarily think that, oh, you know, with DHB and you know, and testosterone and you know, nandrolone is the perfect strength mix. That's stupid. It's not that way because people 
have you know, and I don't like that everybody's a snowflake and everybody's different because that's bullshit. But you can you can take two twin brothers and they're fucking identical. But if you you know one's raised in fucking Siberia and one's raised in the Congo, there's going to be differences about them because they've accrued and collected different conditions. That's kind of what we got here. Is I don't like to think of it as you know these specific things do specific things. It's Certain drugs have specific characteristics. Do you or do you not need those characteristics at this time? So I, I really would push you to think of it that way. Uh, let's see. Ah, Leon Medic's telling me that he's uh, having less heart rate issues. That, that's good. That is good. Um, now get your ass out and move and get some health underneath of you. Um, and uh, you're going to be just fine, young man. Let's see. Let's see. David Herrera saying, I've heard that boldenone amplifies collagen synthesis, leading to stronger ligaments and tendons. Is that true? Um, I've heard that inferred. I've never heard, I've never ever seen any strong direct evidence. Boldenone, very specifically and deeply ingrained in the literature, uh, upregulates uh, hemogenic capacity, red blood cells, hematocrit, that sort of thing, blood volume, all your CBC stuff. There is a strong argument that elevation of those markers does tend to support uh, non-contractile protein growth better. That is a strong argument, but I've never seen any research that directly supports that. Um, now, there is a weird, I, do, I am aware of one weird bit of research that showed um, in racehorses, which are not humans, obviously, but in racehorses that were treated with boldenone, they had higher development of connective tissue in the knee and ankle, uh, to some degree to the point of inhibiting flexion. So I think that's where a lot of that argument comes from. I'm not sure I buy it in humans. Uh, connective tissue is very hard to stimulate, and almost all of the stimulation of connective and soft tissue and non-contractile protein really comes from the peptide mediation, from IGF-1 growth hormone, uh, MGF, etc. So I'm a little suspicious of that, but I know that it's, uh, I know that it's something people have argued. But I, I would probably not put that very high on my list of concerns or you know uh, things to try and accrue from a specific drug, especially when peptides are so readily available and definitely do that quite a bit better. Um, I, I won't say that it isn't the case, but eh, I, I, like I said, I don't think I would pursue that specifically. That's, that's probably a bit of a red herring. Uh, Leon Medic is asking me a question about boldenone, and actually a really good question. Um, the question is, on paper, boldenone seems a great drug to use to boost anabolics, anabolic capacity with only half the aromatization and conversion to DHT. Do you ever recommend its use and in what context? First of all, I love boldenone as a drug. Second of all, I try not to ever recommend anything. I'm not a doctor. I don't. I can give advices and I can give knowledge that I what I know about given compounds. But to answer your question, yes, there are some cases where flat out instead of TRT, you might find a great, well, you would definitely find a greater anabolic stimulus replacing all of your testosterone with a slightly greater dose of boldenone. Say your TRT dose of testosterone is 200 milligrams. Boldenone converts to said byproducts at about half the rate. So you could theoretically, and I've seen it played in practice, apply 200, or rather 400 milligrams of boldenone in replace of your 200 milligrams of testosterone. Get the same amount of conversion to DHT and estrogen, therefore power the male metabolism, libido, etc. Fine, and those residual 200 milligrams basically go to nothing but pure an anabolism, making better performance, better you know physique, etc. The problem with that is, as the comment just before, boldenone does have a strong tendency to elevate CBC values, hematocrit, all that stuff that I mentioned. So were you to engage in that, I would very strongly suggest that something on the three-month mark and every three-month thereafter 
you get some blood work done, which I pretty much suggest anyway, but nonetheless, especially in this condition, and check your blood values and make sure you're not getting into a problem zone with your hematocrit and what have you, because um, steroids in general are not very dangerous, not very bad for you, but a fucking stroke is real bad, folks. Uh, and I am aware of more than a handful of people that have had uh, blood clot-induced strokes and heart attacks due to blood volume problems, due to improper use of drugs like poldenone. It's a real thing. It can fucking kill you. So, uh, yes, I think it's a good idea. Yes, I think it's something that works great. Uh, but like everything, it has a drawback, and you need to be aware of that. And just simply do your homework and check in on it. Um, not everyone's super susceptible to that. Uh, I personally am not. But uh, I do know some people that literally one shot of boldenone and their hematocrit goes up you know, a handful of points. So be aware of it and check it. Hi, Broderick. Is it possible for a natural athlete? Who gives a fuck? I'm sorry. Uh, to improve his insulin tolerance. Always when I add carbs every week for bulking, I feel bloated and a lot of water retention. Well, first of all, water retention is not necessarily bad. It may make you look bad, but... Muscle growth largely is an inflammatory, not largely, almost exclusively, is an inflammatory process. Um, people put way too much stock in their moment-to-moment -moment appearance and their moment-to-moment -moment this and that. Uh, water retention in general is the first step toward almost everything good, L literally almost everything good. So fucking kind of shelve that. Um, to answer the actual questionnaire, is it possible for a natural athlete to improve their insulin tolerance? Of course. Uh, you need to do a couple of things, like fucking exercise. Uh, and I'm not being stupid. Like, literally, like, you know, actual cardio exercise move. Um, uh, and eat the fucking carbs, because your body cannot develop a tolerance to something unless you're exposing it to it. It's like saying, you know, can I develop a tolerance to the sun and you live in a fucking cave? Uh, no. You have to go out in the fucking sun. Same thing here. Will you get better at tolerating carbs if you consistently do it for months on end? Yes, you fucking will. So low-intensity, high-volume, high-frequency, aerobic, actual fitness-based exercise, good idea. High-volume weight training workouts, good idea. By the way, if you're doing high-volume weight training workouts and you're not eating carbs, you're not training fucking hard. You're not because carbs fuel workouts. I know all the fucking natural people are poo-pooing me right now, but... Um, Shut up! You're not. It's just you're just fucking not. I just I, I I don't even I don't even really have much humor for that conversation. Um, so yes, um, natural guys always want to run to supplements. Say how much you know chromium should I take? How much you know vanadyl sulfate should I take? You should start with the basics. You should start eating some fucking carbs. You should you know strategize your exercise around it and start there. That's a great place to begin. Uh, that'll probably take care of 80-90% of your problems, li literally. I'm, I'm not joking. Uh, Kevin Rojas is asking me about strategizing mini cuts and training volume. I'm not really the guy to a ask Mike Isratel on that. I think the whole mini cut thing's fucking stupid. Um, it's one of the few things Mike and I disagree about. Just go, go ask him. I think it's gay. Um, you're either training to get big and strong or you're not. The way you control your body fat is you just eat more or less. I don't, I don't the whole structured mini cut thing just to me seems like a smarmy excuse to not apply yourself. Um, I, I'm, I'm being honest. This is my show. I'm going to be as honest as I want to be. I know that doesn't help you, but that's how I feel. Uh, Michael Wegzern, how do you keep estrogen at bay during a long cycle? Don't take douchebag aromatizable drugs. Uh, don't take butt piles of testosterone. Keep your testosterone and aromatizable drugs like boldenone and uh, Dianabol down toward TRT doses. Take good, strong anabolic drugs like Mastron, Primabolin, Anavar, Winstrol, uh, you know, Tremblone if you have to, and uh, just don't take drugs to convert to estrogen. You never have an estrogen problem. It's pretty simple. Uh, I, I, again, I know that sounds overly sarcastic, but that's the answer. Um, that literally is the answer. Just just don't do that, and then you don't have that problem, and you can move right on to the next thing. Uh, and by the way, you do want, you actually want as much estrogen as you can get without having side effects. So it's not like, you know, estrogen's evil. It's just you just don't want enough to grow, you know, a set of tits and start crying. Um, but everything above that, everything, you know, beyond that is, is good. Uh, what is your opinion are the best of strongmans using PEDS? What, in your opinion, are the 
best of strongman's 400 pound dudes using uh, pedwise. Oh, well, I don't want to specifically throw anybody under the bus. And while I was out at the Arnold Classic, I did have a number of conversations with some of the very best and biggest names in strongman across the board. And uh, it's it's all the stuff you're aware of. It's nothing new or exciting. Um, probably less actual anabolics than you might imagine, and probably more attention to uh, specific nutrition and peptides than you might imagine. Three big doses of growth hormone, IGF, and insulin. Uh, but the, the anabolic side hasn't changed a hell of a lot in 100 years. So it's, it's pretty much what you would expect it to be. Uh, just doses scaled to body weights. You know, you and I at 100 kilograms need, you know, 1,000 milligrams. So, you know, do the math and figure out how much you need to be 200 kilograms. Uh, and it's not linear, by the way. It's not, you know, just double it. No. Let's see here. Uh, in terms of results, is there any advantage to using short-acting esters of, for instance, Test and Masteron? Absolutely not. Uh, they're stupid. Uh, there's a reason why, historically, they were developed first and then later replaced by longer-acting test esters. That's like asking if there's any benefit to driving a Model T. Um, it's way better than walking, but it's an older model, and it's not nearly as good as the shit we have now. Um, the only advantage would be is if you need very fine control, like for instance, a drug test, you know, to take drug as proximal to the test, but still be clean or as proximal to your doctor's visit or something. Um, but other than that sort of fine control, if you're asking about performance, no, there's absolutely no benefit. As a matter of fact, there's nothing but negatives. Uh, for instance, uh, if you were to take 500 milligrams of testosterone and anthate once a week, Half of that would decay over the course of the week. You would still have 250 milligrams. So now you take 500. You actually now have 750 milligrams. And then half of that would decay. And so your dose over time actually escalates because of that little bit remaining, that overlap or leftover. So taking 500 milligrams might ultimately result in a blood value of 1,000 or more milligrams, which converts to even higher nanograms per deciliter. Whereas if you did the same thing with testosterone propionate, so you take 500 milligrams every third day, you take it, it decays by half, you take it, it decays by half, you might never see more than six or 700 milligrams. So even though you're taking the same amount or dosage of drug, you're taking it more often and you're actually getting less of it into your blood. So is there an advantage? Absolutely not. It's silly. And then on a chemical level, which most people never even think of, um, the ester, enanthate, and cypionate, which are almost identical. I believe cypionate is capric acid, and enanthate is caprylic acid, although I often screw them up, so I might have them backward. But capric and caprylic acid, one's an 8-carbon chain, one's a 10-carbon chain. They are, respectively, 8 and 10-carbon chains long. The reason I point that out is because they are not enormously acidic nor enormously caustic. Okay, Propionate, on the other hand is a four-carbon chain, and it is very acidic and very caustic. So it's going to be more painful. It's going to cause more enzymatic issues locally because it's more caustic. There's no benefit to taking propionate. I know all the fucking, you know, John Meadows fucking bodybuilder love it, but they're wrong. It's just stupid. But anyway, um, you know, again, I don't mean to be a jerk, but, you know, I'm not the only person in the world with this information. Swing by the local library, buy a book on chemistry, or even fucking nursing. This shit's in there. It's not that complicated. That's what pisses me off. People like act like I'm the only asshole in the world. I'm like, this information's free. I found it for free. It's not like you know, not like I had to fucking pay any initiation fee. I just you know, swung by, grabbed the books, did some reading. Um, fuck. Anyway, fucking drives me crazy. Douchebag bodybuilders. Fuck. Anyway, let's see here. I'm going to try and focus. Let's see here. Uh, on a cut, do you see any value to adding ephedrine or caffeine or clen or neither? Uh, that's from Josh. Fuck it. Puck it. Puck it. I do apologize. That's kind of funny. Um, I just added that completely on my own. Uh, Josh Puckett. Um, of course. You're talking about compounds that help liberate fatty acids into the bloodstream, make fatty acids uh, more available. The problem I often find people run into with them is they expect the drugs to do the diet for them. That's not going to happen. You still have to diet. However, if you do create a calorie deficit, you do burn calories via energy activity, you know, aerobic activity, whatever. 
drugs like that will get a higher percentage of the calories delivered to the muscle cells in the form of fat. Absolutely. Uh, great idea. So, other than caffeine, are there any stimulants that provide strength increases? Adderall, bronchade come to mind. Um, that is a really big subject, one that I probably would like to tackle separately in a talk of its own. But yes, many stimulants uh, have a lot of effect. The problem is each one has a different duration, a different window of action. Uh, and then a lot of times you can actually get neurological activation kind of probably like what you're talking about from androgens themselves. For instance, powerlifters and, and throwers, for instance, yes, true speed strength athletes, which powerlifters are not, by the way, uh, true speed strength athletes have been using drugs like um, halotestin for you know decades to get distinct neurological transitional power on the performance field and it comes off as a stimulatory effect when it's actually a neurological potentiation. So there's a ton to that subject and you could spend the rest of your life learning about it and really not be the expert that you want to be. It's, uh, it's incredibly deep and complicated but the answer is yes. There's lots of things that help. Simple caffeine, simple ephedrine, you can move all the way up the scale to you know Adderall, modafinil, um, Modafinil is more of kind of a long-term background drug. Uh, Adderall maybe a little less so, and then you get to very proximal drugs. I mean, you'd be shocked how many top-level powerlifters use simple fucking cocaine as a you know pre-workout. So uh, it, it, there's a lot to that, and there's a, a vast you know science behind the application of it, well beyond this conversation. But to answer your question, yes. Let's see here. Is there any validity to using IGF-1, LR-3? Um, yeah, works great. Um, it's one of the few drugs that you actually have to be clever. Uh, the timing is very relevant and valuable to understand, but uh, absolutely. And uh, I didn't say who asked that question, but you and I have conversed in person. Next time we speak, ask me about that, and I'll fill you in. But yes. Uh, IGF-1, specifically the LR3, but actually all of the pantheon of uh, growth factors, incredibly valuable if used very specifically. That's the difference between people that get results and don't is the specificity of use. And it's not just a one-size-fits-all. There's a lot of different applications. But yes, let's see. Bartosz Groz Groswenski? I might be close on that. But the first name is Bartosz. Uh, is there any major evidence to back up the supplementation of citrulline malate? Um, does it re enhance recover, reduced OMS and or improve recovery? Uh, citrulline malate has been shown repeatedly in a laboratory to help convert to the series of pathways that result in nitric oxide release. Uh, that is absolutely accurate, not really disputable. Um, the actual application part where does it help reduce soreness or improve performance has completely, to my knowledge, completely not been validated. My strong suspicion is probably not. Um, most things that are not hormone driven just simply don't influence recovery to any major degree. They might influence a lot of things leading to recovery, like the intensity of training, like blood flow, like a lot of things, but the actual act of recovery is almost always protein expression and almost exclusively that's controlled by hormone signaling and perhaps mTOR you know, through, through the leucine pathway, but elsewise, probably not. Uh, and, and this is the key thing, and, and I, I don't like to say stuff like this because I do have deep ties to the supplement industry. I don't want to completely bash them, but uh, I'll say it again. This is my forum, and I'll say what I want, and that is um, almost certainly not anything relevant to the, the dollar cost. If there is a value, it's probably far below the dollar cost to achieve it. So, you know, if you can get the stuff for free, oh, yeah, well, okay, maybe you're in business. But if you're going to pay shelf price for it, I would not. I do not, if that helps you any. Uh, the, the amount of supplements, the name supplements I take, you literally list on one hand. Um, you know, and I have, and I literally do have access to things for free. So, yeah, I, I, I would not. Uh, just put it that way. I don't spend my money on it and, you know, typically don't suggest my friends and family do. 
Uh, I've heard, what's this, Kevin Rojas, that nut butters are bad for testosterone. Um, then you listen to somebody stupid. Just fucking, it. My only, I'm not even going to read the rest of the question. That's dumb. Um, yeah. And specific foods do not have direct influence on hormonal levels. Um, you know, a, a, a lifetime of consuming soy in, the, in Asia might lower your, you know, resting testosterone five percent. It's the specific foods are not influential to any significant degree. I mean, if you spent the rest of your life living on nut butter, something might happen. Besides, you know, dying of constipation. It, fuck. Sorry, I'm a, if I do come off as a little mean today, I'm getting over the flu. I've been sick all week, and, and and this is actually my normal condition. I'm actually this fucking mean all the time. I've been niced up lately, trying to get all jazzed up for the Arnold. This is my normal condition. Questions like that just, make, just fucking make me want to fucking shit the bed. Fuck. Uh, actually, funny fucking question. Francis uh, Naranjo, shit, I should know how to pronounce that. But Francis asks, is there any truth to the myth behind AAS users tend to father more daughters? I have three. I don't know. I ask that question all the time. My fucking background is biology. I have a strong, strong background in genetics. I've even asked real experts, and they've not given me any relevant answer. But I actually, I, I believe there is. I think there is. If you statistically go down the list of people that you know are admitted steroid users, it's a disproportionate amount of females. It really is. Um, I couldn't begin to speculate what the mechanism is, but God damn it, it, it does seem like a real thing. So uh, whoever told you that or if you saw that on your own good eye, I actually do believe that, although I can't begin to tell you why. Uh, let's see here. What do we got here? What is the best way to get HDL, LDL back to normal levels after a cycle? Time. Don't do anything stupid. Don't engage in any dumb diets. Don't try and do anything weird. Um, as far as drugs, probably not. Health and drugs typically don't go together. Um, biggest thing you want is a sensible, relatively low-fat, high-fiber diet. And is the only supplement I could actually say, and this is probably one that, quote, everyone should take, especially everyone that takes anabolics, is uh, niacin. Get a time-released slow niacin. You buy it at Walmart. There's a, a name brand called Slow Niacin. Um, one 500-milligram jobber right before bed. Uh, it does not – It does have a measurable and, and real effect on total cholesterol and LDL-HDL ratio. Um, not enormous, not drug-like. It'll lower your cholesterol 10 points. It'll improve your ratio maybe one point. But that's a lot for something over-the-counter that's going to cost you you know, five cents a day. Um, other than that, I wouldn't do anything. I would simply let time run its course, let your body correct it. Driving something with drugs is not the way to get to health, You know, taking Lipitor or whatever. Yeah, it might improve the values on paper, but it's forcing the machinery, and that's not really health. That's a forced, contrived answer. Uh, if you're looking for health and that's actually something you're interested in, the number one mover of health is just time, good behavior over time. Trust me, I know that's not a sexy or exciting answer, but that is the answer every fucking time is the longer you, you know the longer you let let your body try and do its thing the more likely it is to accomplish its thing and that that is by definition health so jared laplante why do orals cause back pumps because 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 largely orals are simply more potent per milligram because of a lot of complicated shit that goes on at the liver and beyond i won't get into that specifically i am preparing a big anabolic university thing that's going to cover that. It's a real thing, but two of the biggest reasons are orals, because of the alteration, because of the interaction they have at the liver, cause a much greater cellular upregulation of the creatine synthase enzyme and the glycogen synthase enzyme. It's actually one stimulates the other. So it's, it's actually a stimulation of the creatine synthase enzyme, and then that creates a stimulate, stimulatory effect on the glycogen synthase enzyme. That's why orals always make you look bigger and fuller per milligram. And where you have small compartments, like the carpal, like the low back, where the low back comes into the pelvic region, their space becomes a, a commodity. You've got a 
high amount of cellular hydration and cellular fullness creates a large impingement or constriction on nerve blood flow and the actual room for muscle flexion and you get the ensuing back pump. Uh, I don't love treating things like that. I don't, but two things that do in fact help is uh, uh, vitamin B6 has a strong tendency to reduce uh, peripheral water retention like that, actually help carpal tunnel. Um, it's pretty safe. I don't, like I said, I don't love doing that, but that will definitely, uh, definitely help. And my brain just stopped working, but there's an, also an amino acid that uh, people use. My Actually, my training partner does it all the time, and it, it, it left me, but I'll think of it before the end of this talk, and I'll blurt it out, so stay posted. Uh, but for the life of me, I can't think of it, but B6 is actually where I would start. Michael Wegzern, can you please explain why testosterone makes muscle fibers contraction stronger? Um, in terms of hypertrophy and how it makes muscles grow or how it can improve force production within the same uh, muscular state because they're wildly different things. Um, so think about your question, re-ask, and maybe I'll be able to help you with that. Uh, do benefits of TRT at a young age, 25? That is a young age for TRT. Uh, outweigh the cons, fertility, thanks. Um, that is not a question I can answer. That is a question you or the person suffering from that has to answer. Will TRT and or any exogenous hormone use impact fertility over the long term? Absolutely. Not a question. There's almost nothing you can do about it. And the things you can do about it literally will just put it off, not prevent it. So that's an absolute certainty. Uh, as far as the risk-reward ratio, I can't begin to say that for you. That's something you have to determine, or the person you're counseling, or whatever. That's an individual thing. Some people, the thought of family and children and whatever is so insanely valuable that they could never consider it. Other people just simply don't give a fuck. Um, I couldn't begin to make that decision for you. I can counsel you on the science, and the science is that, yes, exogenous hormone use will absolutely negatively impact your fertility. Will it drive it to zero? Probably not. But will it make it more problematic as the time passes? Absolutely. So, yeah, I, I don't look to me for an answer like that. You know, if you want you know, ratios, percentages, chances, that sort of thing, I'm happy to help you as best I can. But uh, as far as, you know, what should I do? I don't fucking know. I'm, I'm a fucking mess. Don't ask me what to do. Like, I'm fucking so lucky that I've, you know, found my wife and I have children and because I'm a fucking clueless. Don't, don't ask me for life advice. I'm not that fucking guy. <laughs> Shit. Uh, Michael Wegzer asked you about, okay, your question was in reference to force production. Um, I can touch on it. I'll be brief because it's fucking enormously complicated. But in the big picture of things, you know, testosterone, whether you bought it or made it, it's made. And then there's a cascade via the aromatase enzyme over to estrogen, via a different enzyme into 19-nor testosterone, and via the 5-alpha reductase enzyme into DHT. Okay. Then testosterone itself still slips through and gets out and goes forth and does all good testosterone-y things. Okay. The reason I made that distinction is the DHT part, hugely impactful on the neurological side of things. DHT is the enormous neurological upregulator. It makes nerve conductivity, specifically motor pathways to muscles, much more effective, much more vibrant, resilient, and redundant key. That actually has a huge impact on people in physical therapy and things. DHT is e and DHT-derived drugs are enormously effective in driving secondary and tertiary nerve pathways. People that recover from traumatic injuries, kind of like me, drive that very hard or would be well served to drive that very hard with DHT derivatives and possibly even DHT in and of itself. So, uh, testosterone in and of itself binds to the androgen receptor at the muscle, sends a number of signals via cyclic AMP, protein expression, all sorts of things. One of those messages it sends is the upregulation of a number of neurotransmitters, including glutamic acid, um, and then and an enzymatic influence on the receptivity of almost every neurotransmitter in the brain, dopamine, serotonin, 
uh, what's the other big, well, uh, glutamic acid is actually the big one in the brain, and there's one more that I can't think of because I'm, apparently I've suffered a stroke. Uh, trust me, neuro neurological transmitters across the blood-brain barrier, and you get a essentially shorthand language, you get greater voltage from the brain to the target muscle. So you get a, if you think of muscles as uh, you, you basically electrical conduits, you put an alligator clip on each end, send electricity, and they cinch up. The more voltage you send, the greater the cinching up. That's almost exactly how muscles work. Higher amounts of testosterone circumvent uh, something called the Golgi tendon organ, or actually not circumvent, blunt the, the Golgi tendon organ, making contractions potentially more forceful without sending the shutdown message, the dampening message, the governor, as it were. So uh, there's multiple vectors there. Testosterone acts directly on the muscle cell to make it more receptive. DHT comes around the back way, sends greater amount of neurotransmitters. And then also peripherally off of the effluent, testosterone has an influence on the adrenal glands, the hypothalamus, all the other things that are then sending these neurotransmitters into the bloodstream. So you, you get every single aspect is upregulated around the, the big dial, making ultimately much greater contractile force and muscular contractions. So let's see here. That's And that's like a tip of the iceberg. There's so much to that. Uh, Dr. Fred Hatfield's extraordinary book, uh, Scientific Approach to Power. I think is the title. Dr. Fred Hatfield, you'll, you'll find it in one, one click. Uh, super good book. Yeah, I think it's a scientific approach to power. Um, it covers that and, and more and gives a uh, hundred great references of other books, unfortunately, to go buy and read. Uh, so you, you, you know, if you really get into that, you'll wind up buying yourself a library, but it's worth every penny. David Herrera, for rehydration purposes, 24-hour weigh-in for powerlifting, if you're going to be eating like 2,000 grams of carbs, my God, you are the man. 2,000 grams of carbs in 24 hours. Shazam. Fuck. Um, I'm fucking pretty good at that, and I don't think I get 2,000 grams in 24 hours, but, well, God, God, God damn. Um, with two to three gallons of water uh, and electrolytes in that day, what would your metformin Viagra dosing look like? Um, actually, good call. I would start the metformin protocol uh, 48 hours earlier. So you're actually coming into that at, you know, like a full 72 hours. So 48 hours earlier, I would begin at 500 milligrams three times a day, spaced evenly. Uh, the day of, I would probably go to a, just a thousand milligrams or uh, rather 500 milligrams three times a day, and then the day of go to uh, 2,000 milligrams. Uh, how would I break that up? I'd probably just go uh, 1,000 a.m. and probably 1,000 mid-afternoon. Just it, it has a long enough half-life that that's probably how I would do that. But I would go you know, 1,500, 1,500, 1,500, 1,000 on the day of, or 2,000. I keep saying 1,000. I apologize. 2,000 on the day of. Um, Actually, you're saying Viagra. I actually like Cialis better. Uh, I find Cialis, again, because of the longer half-life, you can reach saturation levels much earlier. I would just go with, uh, again, over that same 48-hour period, I would literally just go with one a day, two on the day of. Uh, that's plenty. Uh, and I also find Cialis a little less problematic with just like the spastic, you know, uncontrollable erections for no reason. You're trying to wrap your knees and you're sprouting wood, um, which is a real thing. It really happens. So the more you can minimize that, the probably the better off you're going to be. Um, best to keep at least one head focused. Uh, but actually, it's it's really not as complicated as you think. The only thing I would say is you just want to start it earlier so that the pharmacological impetus is in place well before the food hits the, the, the machinery. That, that's really all that would look like. And those numbers you can tweak and twist depending on your size, your tolerance, uh, a number of things. You know, If you're really, really practiced with metformin, you might want to bring those numbers up. If it's something you've never touched, you might want to bring those numbers down because it, it is uh, a very casually used compound, but it is pretty powerful. Toby Cares is asking me about the difference between you know, one administration and two per week of long-acting compounds. Is there any real difference? Um, I've answered this a number of times, but Toby's a great uh, member, and he, he, he's always quick with good questions, and uh, I always indulge him. And the answer is um, 
there's only difference in the first and last week. After that, everything in the middle is almost identical. Study after study shows that. Uh, my experience with myself and every single client I've worked with shows that. Um, the first week, two evenly spaced out dosages brings you to a homeostasic or what's called a peak plasma concentration much faster and smoother. And after that, the difference between one and four is almost a zero. So I would always go with less administrations because it's just less expensive, less complicated, less painful, less, less, less. Um, and personally, I just write off the first and last week. It's a long-term project. You're going to be on for 20 weeks. Fucking that little hiccup in the first week is just not significant. I wouldn't change my behavior. But if you want to be really, really specific, two administrations the first week, maybe even the second week, one thereafter, everything's fine. Uh, let's see. How often do you get blood work done? Philip is asking me that. I personally get blood work done every three months. I recommend that you, a casual user of steroids, do not less then twice a year, once on, one once off. But the answer I will really give you is, depending on your financial and legal condition, the more often you can do it, within reason, the better. Uh, I personally do it every three months. I uh, think that that's, I, you know, I treat my car that well. I take my car to get oil changed every three months. I think that that's just, you know, just basic good behavior and how you treat a machine that you respect. Uh, don't, don't think it should be otherwise for your body. Uh, Kyle Spencer is asking me about Lyle's Ultimate Diet 2.0, which is a great book, probably the best one on the whole low-carb thing that you can find, um, which, by the way, we all know I'm not a fan of, but I'm a huge fan of Lyle, and coincidentally, he's probably one of the only people running his mouth about this shit that actually understands it. So if you're going to read a low-carb thing, read it from the guy that actually knows what the fuck he's talking about. That would be Mr. Lyle McDonald. So anyway, let's see here. Uh, um, um, yeah, I, I've uh, really not exactly asking me a question. What do I think of it? Um, Lyle and I talk about this all the time. We even talked about this a little bit on the air on one of the podcasts. Um, you know, low carb for a certain period and then turn around and get a transitional refeed. It's the classic cyclic diet. It's probably the one everybody else is fucking copying, to be honest. Uh, I think it actually got its start with uh, Dan Duchesne, Mike Zampano's ultimate diet uh, back in the 80s. I think that's even the reason for the name. Um, if you're a maniac and you really want to try something hardcore, it's a great place to go. Um, I personally, I mean, everybody that's watching this should probably know my disposition. I don't like to rush things. I think that a longer, slower, more thought out, more time-intensive approach is always better. I really feel that. I really believe that. It's not just a cliche thing. I mean, it costs me money. I mean, people want these quick results, and I don't have them because everything that comes out of my mouth is predicated on, let's take our time. Let's do this slow. Let's, let's, let's. Um, so I can't really say that it's to my you know benefit, certainly not my financial benefit, but I personally, you know, being a biologist, looking at things through biological windows and, and, and sustainability and survivability, I think that time is your friend. And anytime you have a, you know, kind of hardcore, you know, deep diet, um, I'm, I'm never a fan and I never think it's the, the best way to go about things. But I will say this, I will repeat this, if you have any interest in, you know, ketogenic, low-carb type shit, Look at Lyle's stuff because he does at least understand the science behind it. He understands the advantages and limitations, and he's honest about them, uh, something that most low-carb fucking zealots are not. Uh, Lyle is not really a zealot. He just understands that it is a mechanism that you can use to your benefit to achieve goals, and he explains how and why, and I find that enormously refreshing. And again, I would direct anybody interested in that field to him because of that. Uh, let's see, another question's come through. Uh, actually, good question goes back. I don't know, uh, Mr. Hansen, I don't know if you were listening to the very opening, but I covered a whole thing about TRT in a 14-day window. And something I didn't cover is your question is, presumably my values will be higher in the first week and then trail off to the set, toward the second. Should you modulate your training volumes to match that? Um, my answer is 
probably not. What you should do is shoot for somewhere in the middle a sustainable overall training volume. Keep in mind that muscle growth is absolutely not a linear process. You may cause a great deal of stress here with a minimal recovery component, but later when the recovery component comes up, you will get recovery for that part. So over time, everything will average. Trying to modulate and match. You know, if you're not working in an East German science lab and you don't know what your androgen levels are at the moment, on the hour, that sort of thing, you're really just guessing. Um, you know, you're just generally saying that it's higher this week than next week and so on. Um, I would, one, start tracking your blood work when you get it and actually kind of get a feel for what these things really are. Uh, you might be surprised based on the way I explained the decay over time. The difference may not be nearly as much as you think. And secondarily, the difference isn't probably nearly as important as you think. Um, you might have slightly more motivation and neurological drive and impetus to train during the higher weeks and a little less during the lower weeks. But on the physiologic level, that shit grinds out very smooth and slowly over time. I would not make a big deal about it uh, really at all. Uh, not, not really at all. Uh, Michael Wegzern, how much should I squat bench and deadlift that 210 body weight to get the thumbs up from you? Um, who cares about my approval? Um, why would that matter? Uh, I will give you some real simple guidelines that I tend to use with my clients, if that helps. Um, I think that you really shouldn't be having any discussion about performance enhancing, you know, kind of things, that sort of thing, until you could do a minimum of a double body weight squat and deadlift and a one and a half time body weight bench press. I think that's kind of your minimum. I don't think you know, quote, know how to lift weights if you're not you know, doing that sort of thing on your own without drugs. Um, you know, my idea of a pretty good, you know, you're putting drugs to good use, you should probably have a triple bodyweight squat and deadlift, probably a double bodyweight bench press, roundabout, maybe not quite. Bench press is a little harder for the average kind of, the genetically elite could do that pretty easy and the genetically average can really struggle to do that. But roughly I would say triple, double, triple is, uh, you know, a sensible application of drugs and a sensible return on investment. Um, you know, that's, that's roughly what I think. Um, but, you know, there's aberrations. I mean, I'm 46 years old, fucking legally crippled. I weigh right now for a little light. I'm probably down to around 225. And, uh, but at 230-something a year ago, I squatted 705, you know, crippled. So, you know, it's not a, it, it's a sliding scale. My deadlift sucks, but I can squat good, so... Jared LaPlante's asking about, um, you know, the, the estrogen rebound and the impacts of estrogen. How can you get estrogen and say a 500 milligram dose of testosterone, get estrogen problems? Um, that's super complicated, but <clears throat> first of all, <clears throat> the longer you, <clears throat> there's so many aspects of testosterone conversion to estrogen, it gets no press. Let's start with the basics. There is a, quote, enzyme responsible called the aromatase enzyme. Dismantles testosterone, cleaves at a given point, generates an estradiol. Okay. First of all, that enzyme is produced in adipose tissue, your fat. So the fatter you are, the easier it is for your body to generate that enzyme. So your body fat percentage, and particularly your body fat percentage in relation to your lean mass percentage, is integral. If your fat goes down, your ability to produce estrogen goes down. Your fat goes up, your ability to produce estrogen goes up. So that's relevant and important right off the bat. Secondly is, like all things biological, practice. If you're consistently exposing yourself to a given dose of testosterone, your body has a lot more practice at manufacturing that enzyme, and it's the, the actual task is easier. So you get a more even, consistent, smooth supply of said enzyme. Also, binding globulins come into play here, but largely, here's what you've got. You're taking an exogenous dose of 500. Your body's producing an amount of aromatase enzyme, and there's conversion. So, you know, 100 milligrams of your testosterone is broken down into estrogen, and that's consistently it's happening, consistently happening. And then you stop taking testosterone. That value declines pretty quickly because it's pharmacologically no longer supported. However, you still have a large amount of estrogen because your body has been not just there's the drug decaying, but the whole time the drug's decaying, the body's also dismantling it into estrogen. So you've got an ever-declining amount of testosterone and an ever 
accelerating volume of estrogen. And one of the things that influences estrogenic effects is not just the sheer volume of estrogen, but the ratio. For instance, I don't presently have any estrogenic effects, but if you suddenly zeroed my testosterone, I would have rampant estrogenic effects simply because I do have three times the normal amount of estrogen. I know because I check my blood values. Now, it's not problematic under these conditions because I have nine times the normal amount of testosterone. But if you zeroed the testosterone and I just had three times the normal amount of estrogen, I'd have big problems. Hell, I'd have problems if I had the normal amount of estrogen. So not only do you have sheer volume, which ultimately becomes the problem because of the decline in androgens, but then you have the ratio of androgen to estrogens. So that is why most of the time you don't need estrogen management for any other time other than when you actually come off. That's usually the time when you need it because you get a disfavorable ratio on top of an accentuated value. So, uh, yeah, I would hide the aromatase enzyme inhibitor until you actually come off or, you know, if you're in a situation like me and never come off, then you damn near never need it. So, <coughs> let's see. Uh, is there a way to manipulate endogenous androstenedione levels in women, either up or down, by Lyle McDonald's women's book. He covers all of that. Anything I'm about to say would just be parroting his book. I don't want to be a shill for the man, but damn it, he put a lot of time and energy into that book. He should be compensated, and it literally does hold the answer to those sorts of questions. Uh, I'm not even going to tackle that, but the answer is yes. And the answer is also, it's probably not as big a deal as you want it to be, but the answer is yes, and Lyle lays out exactly how you would do that and how you don't want to exacerbate that with things like uh, chemical birth control. So, yes. Uh, we have crossed the hour mark. I'm going to go a little bit longer, and then I'm going to wrap up. As you can hear, I'm coughing and shit. I'm not in my best uh, condition. Let's see here. Ola Nordman is asking me one of those incredibly generic questions that I simply can't answer. If somebody was looking to start taking PEDs with long-term goal of getting stronger, no body weight limitations, what, how much, and how long would you take? Um, that's just, it really depends on the survey of the person. You know, what kind of training are they doing? What kind of diet are they following? You know, what kind of time frame are they looking at? The, as I've said through all this, for, in response to a number of questions, I treat compound selection as a best tool for the job. Uh, two people could need entirely different arrays to get to the same place, and two people could use identical arrays to get to two different places. It really depends on what characteristics you need to or want to accentuate within the athlete and then apply the compound accordingly. So it, it, it isn't really that sort of plug and play, like, oh, this is a great mass cycle, just do this. Um, now, having said that, I will say this. Drugs fucking work. You can pretty much damn near pick any of them. I mean, literally, just pick one out of a hat. If you take the appropriate dosage of it, you will get bigger and stronger. That's what they fucking do. Uh, that's not to say you'll do it at the lowest dose and highest efficiency, but yeah, you you know, you take 40, 50, 60 milligrams of Dianabol a day for as long as you can stand it, you'll get big as fuck. It works. Um, it's not what I would recommend, but you can definitely do that, and people do do it. So it's not. That's just not a fair question. Uh, Michael Wegzer's asking me how I would work dosage of testosterone, always on a milligram to kilogram basis. Um, testosterone, I like to keep at an absolute minimum, more like a TRT thing. Uh, I typically shoot for somewhere between two and three milligrams per kilogram weekly, and then any other additional anabolics come from other anabolics and not testosterone. Uh, two to three hundred milligrams weekly of for a 200 220-pound person is a, a more than adequate as a TRT. Gives you plenty of conversion to estrogen, plenty of conversion to DHT, plenty of you know well-being and emotional support, and then get your muscle growth from other anabolics. But uh, all drugs largely are, are based on a milligram to kilogram body weight ratio. Uh, they're not you know just pulled out of the thin air or made up. Uh, almost every medical company puts a chart you know with their drug and it has you know age race sex body weight and you follow lines you come down and go oh there's your dosage um that's just how it works uh it's actually one of the wonders of science you know it's not religion you don't have to wear a big hat and fucking rub beads you can actually look shit up and get legitimate answers based on you know hundreds of years of you know medical practice and science uh, and I'm really, I'm Mike, I'm not, I'm not being some jerk to you. I'm just in general. I get, you got to understand, I get asked questions so many times. And I understand you're doing your best to help the conversation here. And I'm not fucking picking on you, but I get asked that question 8,000 times by people that actually 
don't understand that, so I don't mean to criticize you specifically. I do apologize for that, and that's rare. I don't usually apologize because I don't usually give a fuck. So, anyway, we have crossed the hour mark. Uh, anybody got any really great shit they want to send through in the last couple seconds, or is it time to sign off and me to have another pot of coffee? Michael Wegser just sent me a little heart emoji. That's kind of creepy, dude. Creepy. Hearts are creepy. I'm a dude. No, I'm just, <laughs> I'm just fucking with you. Uh, I'm particularly uh, cantankerous today. I, uh, I almost apologized again, but fuck you, I'm not apologizing. Anyway, all right, no, uh, no really exciting blockbuster questions have come through. Um, I see the little ticker here. We've got more than a few people watching. I'm pretty excited about that. So in closing, I would like to absolutely thank everybody for coming along with me on the wrong day and following me like you have. I super fucking appreciate that. Um, the couple of people that I've bumped into at the Arnold, I'd very much like to thank all of you. I really do not think of myself as fucking famous or anything, but people that actually cut through that hideous crowd just to take a picture with me, that's fucking cool. I never, ever thought I would get to that level. So thank you. This kind of shit helps make that happen. Uh, lastly, uh, I don't think many of you this time of day are probably watching from Australia, but do remember that um, I am doing a big uh, speaking tour in Australia, April 7th and 14th, Sydney and Melbourne. Um, we're going to be doing a lot of PR, a lot of build-up for that, even if you're not going. Uh, join in, do the whole boot and rally thing, push it. Uh, I really do appreciate it. This is my livelihood, folks. So the more money I make, the more likely I am to come and give you guys free information and all that shit. And lastly, uh, I just want to say fucking thank you. It's amazing. I appreciate all you guys. And uh, with that, I'm going to sign off for the day. <coughs> I will see you the first Sunday of next month, and I'll try my damnedest to actually be on the proper day and a proper time, and we'll uh, we'll do this again. All right. Thanks a lot, everybody. Thank you for listening to Sports Performance Radio.